Hello, I'm David Moskrow. Welcome to Open to Debate. Artificial intelligence is embedded in our daily lives whether we notice it or not. It shapes how we live, work, and play. Shopping, gaming, healthcare, cybersecurity, traveling, social media, policing, war, and plenty of other facets of contemporary life feature AI technology, and there's more on the way. And while discussions of AI tend towards questions about sentience and robot overlords throwing off the yoke of human rule and taking over, the more immediate and pressing concerns of use, abuse, equity, and privacy still need to be answered. Shaping AI to serve human needs in the public good requires that the community take part in determining the boundaries and ethics of the technology and its use. Determining those uses and limits starts with understanding its applications. So in this episode, we ask, what can artificial intelligence do? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Yves Jacquier, Executive Director of Ubisoft LaForge. Okay, let's start with the promise that I want to make to you and to our listeners. I won't talk about video games the entire 45 minutes as much as I want to. I'm going to try my best at least to talk a little bit about video games as they relate to artificial intelligence, but get to the broader issues. So I'm going to practice a great deal of self-restraint here. Uh, so let's start with, with this. Artificial intelligence obviously goes beyond the gaming world but it's an important part of that industry. And it's a massive industry. I don't know if you'll know this, but video game industry is bigger than the film industry and bigger than the music industry. So I'd like to start with video games and AI. Uh, can you take me through what Ubisoft uh, LaForge is, what it does, and what it has to do with video games? First, um, if you think about any successful company, for example, any successful activity, actually, uh, you tend to first solve problems and you first tend to try to find a market, for example. In other words, you try to develop a recipe to create product, services, organization. But at some point in time, your well-oiled recipes start to uh, not you know, not fade away somehow, but there's always something outside that's cooking, some new innovation that are disruptive in the sense that it brings new ways of doing things and totally changes the rules and paradigm of such or such industry. If you think about cell phone industry, it has, uh, it went through many different changes uh, during the last 15 years, for example. The same thing goes with video game. And the video game industry has been extremely successful for the last, what, 20 years. However, when you tend to improve your recipes over time, you might find difficult to reinvent them. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we're doing at La Foche. We're trying to take risk. So take new um, technologies, for example, or new ways of doing things and try them so that we can prepare Ubisoft to using them and to take the, the, the best out of that. So obviously there's a technical aspect, let's say like in machine learning, deep learning, or other type of technical concept, there's a lot of work to be done to uh, solve problems, whether it's access to data, uh, new algorithm, 
But there's also a strong dimension on change management. How do you make sure that whatever technology for animators, for example, or for voice creation, or to create interesting behaviors within a game, how do you make sure that um, they're adopted by game creators? And more than that, it, they will uh, create new amazing experiences out of that. So that's really what we, we focus on. And we do that by bridging the academic world where you have a lot of new ideas cooking, uh, but sometimes not really practical with um, the reality of uh, Ubisoft creating games. And what does that look like day to day? So uh, you know, in a little bit, we're going to get into some of the applications and critiques of AI more generally. But at first I wanna understand what it looks like in practice. So you wake up, you go into the office, and then what happens? You're talking to academics, you're coding, you're running experiments, you're, you're designing things in graphic design. Like what does that process look like of applying, of taking AI out of the world of academia or wherever you may find it and translating it into, for instance, uh, a video game like Far Cry or like uh, Watch Dogs, uh, just to you know, slide in some of my favorites <laughs> or Assassin's Creed for that matter, maybe my favorite of them all. So just like uh, any, uh great endeavor, it all starts with a coffee in the morning. At least um, from my standpoint, I cannot really start a day without a strong coffee. You know, I'm half Italian, uh, half French of origin, so coffee is a fundamental. But um, then uh, the idea is we spend a lot of time trying to understand what what are the, the, the new ideas and technologies by talking a lot to academics? So we're talking a lot to researchers. We have a lot of students also working with us. So they're coming here with uh, a fresh perspective on things. If you think of video games as a sandbox, um, simulations, for example, watchdogs could be a nice simulation for a city, for example. So if you want to uh, work into some you know uh, environment that mimic a real life city maybe doing that into a video game could be a good idea which means that when we reach out to researchers we're exposing the kind of problems and um and challenges that we face into creating our own video games while they are exposing us to the latest of the greatest of the solutions that are cooking, let's say for AI. Very concrete examples. A few years ago, we um, had this challenge to have uh, vehicles uh, that would drive themselves into watchdogs. And we were wondering if there were some techniques that we could apply from real life, automot real life automotive industry to apply that into, uh, into our games. And the reality is that although we shared the same concepts, uh, we were very complementary. So uh, we worked and discussed with some researchers um, who were actually uh, making uh, pathfinding for drones. And that was a way for us to apply that into our, into our games, for example. So it's a lot, you know, keeping our eyes open, then trying to start an hypothesis on, hey, where this could help us create greater games. Also discussing with researchers 
to uh, see, if, you know, how we could work together so that it could improve the body of knowledge, of public knowledge. Are there some problems that they could try to solve with us? And when we agree on something, that's when we start uh, focusing on prototypes. And the idea is that th those prototypes that we are uh, creating, I, I do not code them myself. So I have a very talented uh, team to do that. Uh, but those prototypes have the potential to help us to create great games, while it also has the potential to create public knowledge. So I was uh, the other day I was listening to a podcast about Ross Perot called the, uh, an episode of the podcast uh, the dollop about Ross Perot, and the hosts were saying that Ross Perot uh, that that Pixar nearly became the property of GM. It was it was almost going to be used to design cars, and then it of course ended up being used to to make movies. But that technology can be applied obviously across industries. So what you're saying is that this technology is obviously it, it may apply to video games maybe used in video games but we see it elsewhere then it is exported into other uses then totally yeah and if you take any uh, automotive uh, um, car you know with self-driving functions uh, before reaching the road it has made um, thousands of kilometers virtually in an environment where it learns uh, how to cope with obstacles uh, with people with uh, other cars. Um, so when we refer to AI generally, um, recently, I mean, for the last 10 years in reality, we refer to what we call deep learning, which is a very specific aspect of artificial intelligence. And what do you need when you want to, um, to create uh, amazing systems with deep learning for any type of industry you need? either data, a lot of data, mm -hmm. and or you need simulations, environments to test things. These are the two main tracks called machine learning, deep learning, um, which is a way to learn out of data. And when you don't have the data, but you have, let's say, environments like roads and pedestrians and things like that, then you have another track called reinforcement learning, which is another way to say, hey, I want to reach a certain type of behavior, like driving from point A to point Z, and I will provide with uh, rewards each time the car or the bots or whatever um, rightfully do so. And obviously, the video game industry has a lot of both because we have a lot of data that we that we create to create those experiences. We have characters, voices, animation, environments, and all of that. But we also have um, engines and uh, physics simulation and crowd simulation that can also help to um, foster uh, such uh, such uh, deep learning and, and artificial intelligence algorithms. And, you know, it's truly amazing. I've been playing video games for a very long time. And my first system was a Nintendo system, an NES. The first game I remember playing was Mario, well, Mario Brothers and then Mario 3. Um, so I've been a part of that evolution and I've played pretty much everything you can imagine. And it's extraordinary today when you play a game and you've been playing a long time and you play on an advanced system like a next-gen console, um, how how the physics works and how the sound environment works. You know, for instance, Call of Duty, which is something I play, 
um, with a good headset, you can hear and with you know 3D sound, you can hear people behind you. You can hear footsteps coming behind you. You can hear them laterally. You can hear them in front of you. The environment um, is immersive. It's truly, truly extraordinary. And and um, I, I'm wondering to what extent you know AI within the video game industry's goal is to make video games effectively an immersive reality that that feels, I mean, for lack of a better word real because we've come a long way from 2d platformer games <laughs> well it's um it, it definitely it's it, there's an aspect of that however um maybe let's take a step back we see three different i would say ways where uh, artificial intelligence can help in the creation uh, of video games the first one is to uh, assist creators. Um, when you create worlds that are bigger and bigger, or um, it's not only a question of size, it can be a question of variety. Even mm -hmm. if you don't have uh, that many characters or that many buildings or that many vehicles, maybe you want to have um, a fair share of, um, of variety. If you think about a crowd, uh, if you feel that the crowd is in reality a mix and match of five characters that you're reusing again and again, like it was done uh, 10 or 15 years ago, then at some point it becomes you know, less effective in, in, in the experience that you want to give. So first, if we're able to assist our creators, meaning that we cut the kind of, of tasks that are repetitive, uh, we automate a lot of things so that they can go uh, and faster between their ID and the execution. They can also iterate faster to make uh, interesting content. That's the first aspect where AI has proven to be extremely effective. So they're, so they're you know, they're making, for instance, you know, you, a series of different characters is randomized and, and they just, the AI does that. So instead of five stock characters, this is just creating as many characters as you please, is that the idea? That could be the idea, or you can say, let's say I want to have a crowd with that proportion of, in terms of gender or ethnicity, right. for example, and then you could have this AI create that for you with uh, a large variety of uh, characters in the okay. crowd. That could be a, a, an example. The second example or the second ways uh, where AI can uh, help create video games, it's to create more believable worlds. What, what do I mean by that? Um, th there's a lot of limitation when you create uh, um, virtual environments. Uh, for example, if you are an avatar and you are going in a room from point A to point B, you will probably will you, you'll probably jump over the table. Right, mm -hmm. you won't go around the table. However, if you um, notice what NPCs are doing, so all the non-playable characters, most of the time, they're not able to jump over a table. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that. It's called uh, a navigation mesh or nav mesh. It's a 2D plan on which the NPCs, so the non-playable characters, try to find their way to go from point A to point Z. So that's the kind of small details. And that's where, for example, um, AI can also help by providing those NPCs with 
capacities that are more believable in the way, for example, when they navigate uh, in the world. And that's the part of the um, uh, important uh, project we've been working on for the last two years, trying to make sure that our NPCR characters would be able to navigate the world exactly like a normal character or players would do. So that's creating more believable worlds. And finally, um, there's also this dimension of obviously the AI directly participating to the, um, the player's experience, for example. Uh, it's when um, you're able to find either features to make sure that uh, I don't know, the difficulty within the game will be adapted for uh, any player. Uh, it's um, accessibility features, for example, when text-to-speech is able to read uh, aloud uh, the uh, uh, menus, for example, for people who are visually impaired. That's another example. Or uh, when you have to uh, make sure that um, the, the, the game's are safe places for everybody. For example, making sure that you're able to identify within the chats uh, if you know something goes wrong or if some people are starting to become toxic, for example. Mm -hmm. You want to identify that extremely fast and right away. So that's when, for example, the AI is directly linked to the uh, player's experience. So I want, to, I want to get into uh, another aspect of AI because we were talking about creating characters. We were talking about having crowds that were, for instance, of, uh, you know, sorted by, by gender, by ethnicity. That's obviously something that goes into the story, that goes into the game design. One of the challenges of AI is, is bias. We know that in, um, in the broad application of it. It can be gendered, it can be racialized, and so on. And presumably AI is constrained by the biases and the assumptions of those who create the technology and, and apply it. So, you know, what does an equitable and inclusive AI that's reflective of the communities who use the, the technology and are shaped by it look like? I mean, how do you ensure that that's the AI you get and not something that's, that's meant to be for everyone, but actually only serves a small number of people? It's a very tough question because most of the time it depends on the... Uh, application of, uh, of AI. And to me, the um, although there's been a lot of, um, of, um, of discussions around uh, inclusion and, and diversity uh, lately in, in general, uh, and a lot fueled by uh, some um, issues that people find with uh, machine learning, in reality, it's not a new topic. And it's way more in the way you use technology basically the way you apply that and more of uh, being self-aware of what you're doing putting putting always a human at the center let, let me give you two very brief examples the first one is an example where uh it was i think five years ago uh, we had um, an interesting prototype at Forge called the commit assistant and the commit assistant was a module that assist programmers. And the idea is pretty simple, um, based on our history of creating code and uh, creating bugs and solving bugs. Um, when a programmer was about to add new code to the game, then you would have this AI being able to predict if the programmer was about to include a bug. 
and it was working fairly well in that we were able with such a system to catch almost 85% of the bugs upfront without having even the code being reaching um, the, uh, the game. So we were very proud of that. However, that, that was in the lab. So we were prototyping that. But we noticed that to achieve that result, the AI was using extra information, not only the code and the bugs, but also information about the programmer. So at what time the commit was made or what is the experience of the programmer and even could infer the gender of the programmer. So obviously at that time, systems that could make AI more explainable were, were not that mature uh, five years ago. It goes extremely fast, but because we, we, we were conscious of that, we decided to remove all these data from the system itself so that our AI, when put into production, would only use the data from the code itself, the programming code, and the history of bugs and everything and all of that, but we would remove any type of information that would be linked to individuals just because we were not comfortable with the fact that potentially, even though it was not proven, even though it was just us saying that, potentially the AI could um, evaluate our people, whether, so it's, if it's a programmer that's, who is this old with this gender and all that, then there's a high risk. We're not comfortable with that. So we removed uh, this information and uh, from 85%, we went back to 75%, which we eventually improved over time. So that's the first example. Sometimes the right way of dealing with that is simply to remove any type of information as simple as that. The other example I have in mind is a pretty recent one. Uh, we have a, a project called TaxBuster, uh, which aim to analyze chat lines and um, spot, hopefully in real time, uh, if there are some toxic lines. And it's a very complex problem because it depends a lot on the context. For example, if we're playing a, a, a shooter like Rainbow Six, maybe we're playing together. And if I, at some point I'm writing, hey, warning, I'm gonna kill you. It yeah. might be in the context of the game, yeah. totally acceptable. But you know, in other contexts, it might be extremely toxic. So how do you make a difference? So we have uh, created uh, a, a project uh, around that. But uh, the, the first step for us was to try to determine what is toxic and who decides that something is, is toxic. So what we did was that we, um, we gathered together um, many experienced players uh, from, from Ubisoft games. And um, we wanted to make sure that we would have a diverse crowd to ask them, hey, do you want to help us to uh, solve this problem? And um, you tell us uh, what are the lines in chats that uh, you think are uh, toxic depending on the context and all of that. So we did all this exercise with uh, a variety of people in terms of gender, ethnicity, background, name it. 
to make sure that the what we call the data sets. So by the end of the day, the examples that show what is toxic um, and, and in which sense it's toxic uh, was the input uh, was coming from a, a diverse crowd uh, that's, and that they would tell us what they think it toxic by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, the, the fact is that by the same token, surprisingly, there were not that many differences in terms of perception uh, between the different people and between the different backgrounds. Most of the time, um, it was somehow common sense. Well, obviously, we're trying to catch the uh, the edgy um, issues that can be very uh, cultural and, and everything. But then, once again, for this project, we went further in terms of bias, because sometimes, um, uh, same thing, a, an AI could potentially infer some cultural characteristic from chats and then starts to bias itself towards certain type of people or certain type of culture or certain type of languages also. So we have set up a new project that is actually starting as we speak just to um, try to quantify uh, this bias. Um, and, and try to see if if there's a quantifiable uh, bias, and if there is, um, making sure that we can uh, circumvent that. So I, I want to get into social media and AI in a minute because I want to talk about some other applications for it, but I want to get into uh, uh, an area that I think flows naturally from this conversation, which is AI as a technology more generally. How do we assure that it's used ethically for the public good and what those boundaries ought to be. So, uh, you know, for instance, you know, the video game industry is, shapes culture. It's a remarkably powerful industry in which a lot of people are socialized. And, uh, and so hence paying attention to questions of, of equity and inclusion are important because it's going to reflect communities. It's going to shape communities. It's going to f- affect how we talk and what we talk about. Um, but of course, there's far, far more to, to that too. I mean, in other industries, defense, policing, so on. But how do we collectively limit the potential abuse of AI? For instance, you know, think about unwanted surveillance or tracking in our personal professional lives, the creation of certain weapons and so on. As a, as a philosophical question of how do we collectively say, okay, there, he's, here are the things that we just simply shouldn't do or shouldn't do this way? Is it up to just relying on, on engineers to make good decisions? Is there a role for the public? How do, how do we get that done? It's a very, very complex question. Um, well, first, uh, I should say I'm, I'm not a specialist of uh, ethical question. However, um, uh, I regularly talk with the people from the Obvia here in Quebec who are a um, bunch of researchers who are, you know, trying to shape AI for the greater good. And so you have uh, people with a legal background, people with um, you know, philosophical background, uh, social science background, and all together uh, are targeting those very important questions. So we um, very often um, discuss with them. I would say that the, um, the most important part is transparency. Um, we are not, well, we're not perfect, neither as human or as corporation, 
Um, but if we are transparent in what we're doing and why we're doing things, I think it helps a lot. So collectively, as individuals, uh, I would think that the, the, first, the first power that we have is to make sure that we raise this need for transparency to any AI usage. Uh, and that by the end of the day, uh, we do not use products or services that uh, are not uh, transparent uh, enough uh, with our own uh, core values, for example. But to me, transparency is extremely uh, important. Yeah, and we hear about that a lot in another area when we talk about, say, social media algorithms, for instance, of what's boosted, what's not boosted, uh, where we, we don't have algorithmic transparency, for instance, we simply don't know. And a lot of times those companies are, are opaque. So I think that's extraordinarily important, the idea that we, uh, that we do have transparency and we do have a dialogue. And presumably, I mean, as, as a company, for instance, um, you, you've mentioned that you're talking to communities. You have to mention in the context of, of, of harmful chats. Is there a broader conversation happening about, um, about AI with the, with the public? Is this something that, or, or is, this a, is it primarily with academics that you're speaking about this stuff? No, we're talking about the public. I mean, you cannot be transparent uh, in, in silos. So we're trying to reach out to as many people as we can. And, uh, many ways to do that. We uh, we have our own uh, blog for people who would be enthusiasts. Uh, we had uh, recently uh, released our own podcast where we explain all of that, and that's accessible to everybody. Obviously, we discuss with re uh, researchers when uh, we try to find um, um, you know solutions, methods uh, to make sure that. Uh, we um, we are doing things the right way, uh, and and we don't know everything, and nobody does. That that's the difficulty. Let's keep in mind that although the the principle of machine learning um, ties to the sixties and eighties, but the real first concrete uh, results are ten years old uh, in mm -hmm. terms of application. So uh, it's more mature in terms of technology than it is in terms of uh, usage and and uh, regulation and all of that. So uh, yeah, we're talking to many people. When we talk to, in terms of, of toxicity, online toxicity, for example, the people we talk to are players and we're totally transparent with them on the kind of thing that we're trying to do and when we need their input in terms of data as well. Uh, mm -hmm. We try to be as transparent as we can in terms of uh, uh, player data usage, for example, and anybody can opt out of that. We're, GDPR compliance, for example. So all of that are small steps uh, that we can do to try to explain uh, as, as clearly as we can um, and uh, as much as we can uh, some technical decisions and more importantly, their implication uh, when we have to do so. You might have noticed that, for example, um, Earlier, I mentioned that one application of artificial intelligence in, is in creator's assistance. assistance. Um, it, I, I did not mention creation uh, assistance. And that's, to me, uh, it's really important to make this kind of distinction. Putting the human, the people at the center, um, the, the final user at the center, 
and then trying to be as transparent uh, as possible with them just to make sure that um, you know we work not for them we do not create solution for them but somehow with them mm -hmm. I want to close out on talking a little bit about uh, AI more more broadly uh, you know we mentioned some some potential applications beyond beyond video games and obviously there's a conversation between the gaming industry and other industries and vice versa. I mean, these technologies presumably are, are crossing over. Uh, I'm curious when we look beyond the gaming industry, where do we see the future of AI applicability in, in useful ways? I mean, you know, social media, for instance, in, in, in helping control social media discourse, is it going to be in, in travel, in, in automobiles, in, uh, well, obviously policing and war, but it's hard, you know, harder to see how that might be productive, but maybe it is. Uh, where is it going to be that we see day to day this technology really flourish and, and condition our lives in, in useful ways? Or is it everywhere? <laughs> is it... Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I would see two tracks. Uh, and, and then it all depends on so many, um, so many things. I see two tracks. The first one is everything that is in terms of automation. Think about testing, for example. Uh, when you want to uh, test, whether it's in terms of manufacture uh, or, or, or computer science programming, uh, there's still a lot of improvements uh, to do there and to automate uh, a lot of things. So, um, you know, trying to um, detect defect, for example, in in, in manufacture or or um, well any type of, of toolings. Um, if you think about manufacturer defect detection, for example, or even healthcare um, analyzing um, tons of data and bio data just to make sure that uh, you know it helps doctors to uh, provide with um, the, the right conclusion on uh, about patients' conditions. So that will be. Um, we'll see more and more added value um, beyond this mere demonstration of technology. Uh, that's definitely a, an important area. Another area is um, accessibility, uh, I would say, um, and accessibility in a, in a broad way. Um, I don't know if you play music, for example. I do. Um, I don't know if you're an artist, and I don't know if... Uh, maybe there are things that you would love to do, like better drawing or uh, express yourself in terms of, I don't know, in an artistic way. And maybe you don't have all the skills to do that. And believe me, I, I cannot draw, for example. I would love <laughs> to be able to, 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 to draw. Um, and probably uh, AI will facilitate more and more accessibility to this type of creation, the, the uh, more and more um, people want to be creators. Uh, I think that's uh, a strong characteristic of the uh, Gen Z people. They, they, they want to express themselves, they want to be creator. And as such, AI is an enabler. Whether it's to edit videos, whether it's to automate uh, the edition of podcasts, whether it's to uh, help um, you know, visualize ideas uh, or help you to draw something 
or be able to figure out the um, design of my uh, home, for example, um, having tools help, helping me on that would be very valuable. So I think that more and more we'll see also this tendency. Um, on the one hand, for expert people, more and more automation, uh, like testing, uh, defect detection, um, advanced uh, analysis tools. And on the other hand, uh, more accessibility for everybody uh, and amateurs and people who are not uh, experts in uh, any domain. Uh, that would be the two huge tendency I would uh, foresee for the last, the next five years somehow. Okay, and the last question, are you allowed to tell me what you're, what you're playing right now? Is it something secret or is it just something normal, like something I'd be, <laughs> or is it, is it Assassin's Creed or something? Well, I'm not an avid gamer, actually. I'm playing a lot to uh, try to uh, understand what's uh, uh, under the, the hood. Um, I must say that um, I, I'm going back to some um, to some uh, to some games. Uh, I, I love the Bioshock, for example. Oh yes. Um, and uh, so I, I'm playing. Uh, I have played Bioshock during uh, my vacation. Uh, just this immersive environment. So uh, I I love that. I rediscovered uh, also uh, the um, Command and Conquer Three. Uh, oh, yes. yeah. Oh, that's a great, uh, the remastered one? Was this the? The remastered one, yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, so I rediscovered that. And on top of, uh, you know, uh, trying to, uh, to uh, you know, get up to speed with all the uh, amazing uh, experiences uh, that you can find. Another one that I found uh, very interesting is uh, uh, Rebel Inc. on iPad. I don't know if you know uh, that one in terms of strategy. It's also uh, uh, a very interesting. And obviously, uh, I play uh, uh, Ubisoft games a lot just to make sure that um, I'm able to, to be up to date on the kind of innovation that we can propose at, uh, at La Forge. Oh, that's the dream. Well, that brings us to time and, and to the career that I would have pursued had I gone a different direction in life but alas i'm just an amateur an amateur but an avid amateur i do love it so first of all thank you very much for joining me today and speaking about this this was was great i really appreciate it my pleasure debbie and as always thanks to carolyn smith ross clark and aisha jara who make the show not just possible but so much better than it would be without them and to all of you listening i hope you've got a game in hand don't feel bad for gaming in the summer you need downtime from outside too We'll see you back here in two weeks.